Well, church, turn with me to Genesis chapter 2. Genesis chapter 1. Go back one page. Genesis chapter 1. So we continue our study of, of Genesis, but specifically Genesis 1 through 3. We're kind of hitting smaller and smaller chunks of text. We initially went through these larger passages regarding the nature of creation. But the, the emphasis of the sermon series is really to drill down on some of the foundational truths that are revealed in the opening chapters of Scripture and how they ought to completely form and shape our paradigm, our worldview, how we see everything. Not just Scripture, but how Scripture then impacts life. This is the beginning of our apologetic. This is the beginning of our gospel. This is the beginning of our life with Christ. It starts in a proper understanding of Genesis 1 through 3, and then goes from there. So today we're going to be in in verses 26 and 27. So hear the word of the Lord. Then God said, let us make man in our image, according to our likeness, so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea, and over the birds of the sky, and over the cattle, and over all the earth, and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. And God created man in his own image, in the image of God he created him. Male and female, he created them. God, we thank you for your word. We thank you for these words. Words that most people know. That there's still enough left in our culture where this idea, the Genesis 1 and your creation and man being the pinnacle of creation, the image of God, these things still swirl around in the collective consciousness of this culture and this country. But Lord, it means so much more than just empty words. It's certainly more than myth. It's certainly more than story. So Lord, speak to us today as we endeavor to turn to your word and through your spirit be shaped, molded, informed. Not with knowledge that simply puffs up, but with something that draws us nearer to your heart and conforms us more into the image of your Son, Jesus Christ. We ask this in his name. Amen. Well, church, what is the point of man? I'm not talking Westminster Confession. What is the chief end of man? Which, of course, is to glorify God and to enjoy him forever. That's important to know. But what is the point of man? If you were to walk out and... I wouldn't say walk out into the street. You're not going to encounter anybody walking in the street. But if you were to walk out and engage someone today and say, what's the point of humanity? What's the point of mankind? You're going to get an interesting answer. I guarantee you. Everyone has an answer, whether they have it in some sort of creedal form or philosophy or not. Everyone has an answer. What is the point of man? What is the point of humanity? Well, I would wager that for most people outside of a biblical worldview, they're going to give you one or two answers if they're pressed, if they're pressed to their logical logical conclusions. And because the fact of the matter is, is that secular worldviews, worldviews that discount God, that discount what we talked about a moment ago in Genesis 1, 26 and 27, inevitably 
man will make man God or man will make man dirt? What do I mean by that? Man will make man God because man will, if in one sense, push man to a, a place of autonomy, of sovereignty, that we make all of our own choices, we are in control of our destiny, we are basically lowercase g gods. The world will answer that. Whether they say it in those terms or not, many people believe that mankind, because of our consciousness, because of our achievements with, with technology and culture, that we are essentially gods. Or, on the flip side, and maybe even in the very next breath, man will make man dirt. That we are simply a particular arrangement of biological, chemical, organic compounds. Ergo, we are nothing different than dirt, or a worm, or a bird, or a fish. It's interesting that in our culture, it has to vacillate from one extreme to the other. There's this desire and there's this acknowledgement that man is something higher, but with, without any sort of tethering to the concrete truth of revealed scripture, it has nowhere to hold it, and so it floats off into the ether and man is brought to a level of God. But when pressed with the science, when pressed with the reality, when pressed with the materialistic evolutionary worldview, Man also then is dropped down to the same level of any other biological organism. We are simply a little bit better than the apes from some way, in some senses, who are simply a little bit better than like a, like a, a taper or a groundhog, which is a little bit better than a reptile, which is a little bit better than a fish. And ultimately, at the end of the day, we're all basically the same thing. We have the same value. So once again, man on his own, the philosophy of man, the worldview of man, man makes man either God or dirt. However, in an interesting turn of events, in the reality of the way things are, God makes man, man from dirt. This is the great inversion, church. God makes man, man, and he makes them from dirt, but they only makes him that way because he is God. So man is not dirt, man is not God, but God makes man from dirt. And this is special. This is unique. This is different. This is distinct. In this man has dominion. In this man has dignity. And this is what we see in Genesis 1, 26 and 27. So firstly, we see that man has distinction. Man is distinct. We see this in verse 1 in 26. Then God said, let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Man is different than anything else. Because if you look at the first 25 verses of this chapter, God is in the business of creating. Using the power of his word and the presence of his spirit, you have this triune picture of creation where God creates everything. Later in Scripture, it says nothing, was nothing is created that was not created by God, specifically through Christ. Everything was created, but up until this point, all these things that were sovereignly and perfectly and wonderfully created by God were not created in His image, were not created in His likeness. Man is different than everything 
else. Man is different than anything, everything else. We read earlier from Psalm 8 as we had our call to worship, and it says that the psalmist says, When I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have established, what is man that you are mindful of him, and the son of man that you care for him? The psalmist is acknowledging a Genesis 1 reality, which is that there are stars in the sky, there's a sun and a moon, there are galaxies that from a quantitative standpoint exceed our size, exceed our understanding and comprehension, certainly the understanding and comprehension of somebody who lived a thousand years before Christ. But he says that even with that, even with the depths of space, even with what we've known from the telescopes and the probes and the things that we've sent out to the deepest regions of the universe, God remembers man and cares for man in a way that is distinct, in a way that is unique, in a way that is different from the way that he cares for and considers the galaxy and the plants and the animals and the earth itself. This is because man is in the image of God. Nothing else is. Now, this doesn't mean that creation isn't good. This doesn't mean that we have some sort of defeatist theology or defeatist theology about creation that says it's for us to use, abuse, and do away with. It doesn't mean that, as we talked about a few weeks ago, we can go smash any animal and tear down any forest that we want with no repercussions. Because as we'll see here in a minute, God has given us a special relationship with creation. But it does create a distinction. It does create an other. There are a lot of us and them mentalities that are frowned upon in our culture today. When you talk about the differences in cultural in, in cultures, our culture and other cultures, when you talk about differences in worldviews, when you talk about differences even within a socioeconomic strata, so much has been done to mitigate those differences in the way we speak about things. And in doing so, it really eliminates the reality that there are differences. There are differences in the two genders. There are differences in ethnicities. There are differences in socioeconomic strata. It doesn't eliminate the value of every one of people in those things, but it, we acknowledge that there are differences in cultures. The way we do life here is a little bit different than the way they do life in the American South, which is very different than the way they do life in Central America. It's very different. And acknowledging those things isn't bad, but our culture says that anytime we acknowledge difference, we are essentially othering people. That's one of those words that gets turned into a verb and weaponizes it. But the fact of the matter is, is that God creates an other with us and the rest of creation, with mankind and the rest of creation. And labeling things as other, again, is contrary to the spirit of the world that we live in. But here's the problem. If we don't label animals, if we don't label plants as other as different, as not being in the image of God, then we're not raising the value of animal life. We're not raising your, the value of your dog or raising the value of a bald eagle or raising the value of, of an, an oak tree. What we're doing when we don't label those things as different is we're not giving them the image of God. We are removing the image of God from mankind and we are lowering the value of man. 
That's what happens when we don't create or acknowledge, excuse me, that distinction that God has put between mankind and the rest of creation. Again, this causes Christians to think in tension, that there is a difference between mankind and the rest of creation, but it's not a difference that makes it so that we can't care about or know about the rest of creation. When we don't label man in the way that God does as the image of God, then what happens is, is that we lose sight of the fact that man is different, that man is special, that God has created man to be different. This is something that inevitably all people will will acknowledge when pressed. Their worldview, their philosophy, their arguments, their their polemic on social media, what they're doing maybe as they protest out in front of a state school campus, All of those things may say that we are the same as the rocks and the trees and the birds, but when pressed, they know that there's something different. That image of God is irrevocable from mankind, and they know that, and they see that as hard as they try to deny it. Man is distinct. God has created man to be distinct from the rest of creation. Now, a brief word on a word that is used twice in that first phrase of Genesis 1.26. Again, it says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. Now we'll talk about the image here in a little more detail in a second, but I wanted to touch on the word our. I want to touch on the word our. Now there's a number of, of different perspectives on this. Sometimes it's, it's simply said that having this plural form indicates the, nature, the fact that the Trinity is being revealed immediately right off the bat from Genesis chapter 1. And I think there's a lot of validity in that. But it's not settled science. It's not settled Hebrew scholarship to say because the plural our is being used here that it necess- necessarily means that that is what is intended to be communicated. But what is interesting is that there is some purposeful nature in the use of the collective hour, just like the word Elohim, that word that we talked about before a few weeks ago, for, that is used of God in Genesis chapter 1, actually has plural connotations to it. Again, this is not the text that we necessarily go to to say, there, this proves the Trinity in Genesis 1. Because I think there's actually much more clear pictures of the Trinity in Genesis chapter 1. We have God creating and his spirit hovering over the waters, and then we have him creating through his word. There we have that triune picture of God, the Father creating, the Son being his agent of creation, and the Spirit being present. These things are explicit in Genesis chapter 1. But what we do have here, and I think it's worth pointing out because I've, we often hear this when we get to this text, the idea of let us make man in our image, is that it is pointing towards the Godhead who is triune. What it's not pointing towards, and this is important to, to point out, it is not God talking amongst the angels. It is not God talking amongst a group of other divine beings. When God creates man in our image, his words, he is creating man in the image of God. He is not creating man after the image of angels. He is not creating man after the image of some other unseen conscious being. He is creating God, man in his image. 
And we see this in Isaiah chapter 44. We just, if you've been going through the Meshane Bible reading plan, you, we are in Jeremiah now, but for the last few weeks, we were in these closing chapters of Isaiah. And these chapters are some high theological prophetic prose regarding who God is, how he is distinct, how he is other, how he is completely different than any other conceivable God that's out there, any other conceivable God of the pagan nations, but even beyond the expectations and the hopes and the understanding of his people. In Isaiah 44, it says, thus says Yahweh, your redeemer and the one who formed you from the womb. We'll hang on to that for later too. I, Yahweh, am the maker of all things, stretching out the heavens by myself and spreading out the earth all alone. In this, we understand that God is not creating by committee. He's creating by Trinitarian committee, but he's not creating by committee drawing on other lesser gods or drawing on angels or other beings of the unseen realm. God is creating alone. And that's what we get in verse 126. So the first thing off the bat that we need to establish is that God creates man in his image, according to his likeness, in a way that is distinct from the rest of creation. This is a foundational, necessary understanding that we need to have as we think about the world that God has created and as we engage with others who don't have that understanding. It is a necessary presupposition for us to acknowledge this, that man is different, that man is not God, that man is not dirt, but that God had created man from dirt to be something special within the realm of his creation. So first, man is distinct. Secondly, man has dominion. Man is created with dominion. Now, this is something that we're going to talk about much more fully in a few weeks as we talk about what is called the creation mandate, how there's much more than just thou shalt not eat of that one tree that God commands Adam and Eve. There's actually a lot of things that God commands Adam and Eve. And a lot of that falls under this category of dominion. So pick it up in verse 126. We, God creates man in his image according to his likeness. It says, so that they will have dominion over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. So a lot is said about the image of God. I've heard countless examples and countless sermons and countless commentaries and countless books. What is the image of God? I think the most uh, uh, probably easily uh, uh, discountable idea of what the image of God is, is that we look like God. We actually know it's the opposite. When Christ took on flesh, he was made to look like us, not the other way around. We don't look like God. God is not, as some Renaissance painting may demonstrate, an old guy with a big white beard sitting up on a cloud looking angry at people. He may be looking at angry at people, but it's an anthropomorphic angry, not a physical angry. So we don't physically look like God. God is spirit. So that is not what the image of God is. But we've inevitably heard other things, that we are rational like God is rational, that we have relationship like God has relationship, that we communicate like God communicates. 
And all of those things, I think, are derivative. All of those things are true. We do every one of those things in a unique and a special way that the rest of creation does not do. Whales will call to each other and chipmunks will chir you know, chirp at each other in a tree, but it's not the same kind of communication that can generate the works of Milton or the works of Shakespeare. That's not what, what critters can do. We can have relationship in a way that goes beyond what animals, that how a, a beehive can, can come together to be incredibly intricate and beautiful and, and have so much detail and a really a very incredibly functional kind of lowercase c culture. But what we're able to generate is much greater than that. Those things are true about man, but that's not in the text. That's an assumption based upon trying to figure things out. What does the text say? What does the Bible say about what the image of God is? It says it in a very plain way, in a way that I think is, is the clearest way to understand what the image of God is. God says in verse 126, let us make man in our image according to our likeness so that they will have dominion. That in its most clear sense is what the image of God is. There's a lot of hoops that have been jumped through in sermons and in books and in, in studies of Genesis to try to explain what the image of God is, where it says it plain here in the text. The clearest explanation of the image of God is that God made us in his image so that we will have dominion. God has total dominion. Remember, verses 1, 20, 1 through 25, God is expressing his dominion over every single molecule of his creation. And then in verse 26, he creates man and then gives man a bit of dominion over that creation. God has complete and sovereign and total dominion. We have derivative dominion. God can create the cattle by speaking. We are able to breed and keep and harvest from and milk the cattle for our benefit. God is able to speak orchards into existence we are able to cultivate and order and hybridize and, and reap the benefits of orchards and vineyards for our benefit. God has total dominion. We have derivative dominion. God creates, organizes, and tends. We see that in Genesis 1 and 2 as he speaks things into creation. In Genesis 1 and in Genesis 2 as he creates and illustrates how he establishes the geological and the biological mechanisms by which all creation will perpetuate itself. He does those things through the word of his power. He gives us the ability to do the same thing with the work of our hands. Jumping ahead again to Genesis chapter 3, part of the curse that's given is that man will work, but now there will be toil, but now there will be sweat, but now there will be thorns. The idea of tending and working animals and plants was something that was already existent prior to the fall. And so we can have an argument later if you'd like, I'd be for that, I suppose. There's other perspectives and there's other implications of this, I believe, that are true. But the most basic level of what the image of God is, is that God created, organized, intended creation. He has given man a little bit of that to do as his ambassadors on earth. Remember, going back to our study of Genesis 2, what is the Garden of Eden if not this beautiful temple garden a place for God to meet with his people. 
And so just like as you continue to go forward through the scriptures and you see the duties that are given to the priests, the duties that are given to the Levites, the duties that are given for these people to take care of the tabernacle and take care of the temple later, we are given the same thing with God's temple, God's tabernacle, God's place here on the earth. We have a priestly duty, not simply to be spiritual, but also in the spiritual heart and mindset tent to the physical things that God has created for his glory and for our good. So much more could be said about that. But I think that this, again, corrects some erroneous thoughts of our day. Because we have been given dominion over the fish of the sea, amen, and over the birds of the sky, come fall, amen, and over the cattle, come lunchtime, amen, and over all the earth and every creeping thing that creeps on the earth, since we have been given that, we are over everything. Now, again, we talked about last week or the week beforehand how that a Christian ought to be the forefront, foremost voice in conservation and restoration and, and, and conscientious biblical environmentalism. This idea that this has been created for us to use but not to drain, to enjoy but not abuse. We ought to speak that way, but we also have dominion over fish and birds and cattle. So understanding this, that we have been given dominion over things, that this is literally part of how we've been created, it corrects the materialism of the world. Now, being a vegetarian is your choice. We can have an argument about that later. Eating, you know, not eating certain foods, that is your choice. Scripture does not put that yoke or that burden upon you. But this is an example of how perhaps a PETA protester is operating at a completely different worldview. The fact that I have leather shoes that, Lord willing, there is cattle in my diet sometime later today, that is an example of a difference between the materialism of the world. And when I say materialism, I'm not saying nice watches and nice cars and nice houses. I mean the fact that all things are material, and so consequently, we're no different than cattle. I think you, you, you may have seen that PETA put out just a, a horrendous advertisement sometime in the last few weeks with cartoon animals eating cartoon people parts. And it's ridiculous, but the, the sad thing is this is how people think. This is how people feel. And again, if your conviction is to not eat meat, then that's all fine and good, but that is a conviction. It's not something that we are, has been given to us by God's word. Man is over everything else. And that corrects the materialism that says we are dirt or that we are simply glorified, evolved creatures. We are to be loving in our dominion, but we are to have dominion because of the status that we've been given. It's interesting, just a few weeks ago in a Bible study that I lead in Andover, we talked about in, in Mark chapter 10, how God actually gives an expectation for how authorities ought to rule. Jesus says this, you know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and that their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. Now, most directly, the, the, the primary application of this has to do with the apostles and their authority in a, sphere, a spiritual sphere. But there's a derivative application of this also. It's the idea of servant leadership. It's the idea of being caring. 
It's the idea of taking care of the animals that have been entrusted to you. It's the idea of, of taming that garden and that yard and being conscientious of how you do things, that you're not spraying pesticides willy-nilly, that you're not doing things that are going to be detrimental to the natural world. Having dominion doesn't have the mindset of, it's all going to burn anyway, so who cares? Having dominion is the mindset of, God has given this to me to lovingly take care of for my good and for his glory. If you want to wipe away all the ecological and philosophical and worldview implications of taking care of creation, that at the most bare minimum, we ought to take care of creation and exercise loving, good, servant-like dominion over it, it's because it's been given to us for our good and for his glory. God is glorified when we fulfill our status as image bearers as we have dominion over everything on this world. So first, man is distinct. Second, man has dominion. And thirdly, man has dignity. Something that is helpful as you read Scripture particularly the Old Testament, particularly as you get into uh, texts that are, um, have poetic aspects to them. And I think Genesis 1, it's literal, it's true, but it also has poetic aspects to it. When you have repetition, you're supposed to pay attention to it. Think about even, fast forward from the, 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 the Hebrew to the Greek, you think about Jesus. When he really means business, what does he say? Truly, truly, I say to you, or verily, verily, if you have a different translation, Repetition means something. We repeat things to our kids when we really want them to get it. We grab them by the shoulders, we look in their eyes, we say it once, we say it twice, we have them repeat it back to us. Anytime there's repetition, it means something. So notice what verse 27 says. After verse 26, establishing that God created man in his image, it says in verse 27, and God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created him. We'll talk about the male and female part next week more. But notice this, in the span of two verses, in the span of two sentences, thrice we have repeated that God has created man in his image. This is an important thing, church. This is a thing that God, through his spirit, wanted Moses to make sure the Israelites knew. This is something that God, through his spirit, in his church, preserving his word, wants us to know thousands of years later that we are in his image, that we are distinct, that we have dominion, that we have dignity. What this means is that mankind matters, that we matter. We matter in a way that is not artificial, that we are not gods, we are not divine, we don't have the sparks of something in us, but we have dignity. We are greater than dirt. We are greater than the rest of the created order. We are better than, not because of anything inherent in us, but because God has made us that way. What's the alternative? What's the alternative? If not in the image of God, if not distinct, if not having dominion, if not having dignity, what is the alternative? It's very quick to go to the well of 1940s Germany and the Nazi regime to get examples of the alternative to God's way of doing things. Certainly, we can find them in our own culture today. 
Certainly we can find them in other parts of the world throughout history. But the phrase that was used by so many of those architects of the Third Reich in Germany was the idea of life unworthy of life. Acknowledging that there's some people that are people, but they're not people in the same way that we're people. They are life. Yes, they live, they breathe, they have relationship, they, have, they can communicate, they can do those things. But they, because of who they are, because of their ethnicity, because of their social status, because of their perspective on the world, they are unworthy of life. And virtually every person today would decry that statement, particularly when put into the context of the Nazi regime, and they would say, no, that's terrible. Life unworthy of life, we can't have that. We've evolved past that. We've learned our lessons. But the fact of the matter, church, is that we haven't. Our culture hasn't. The world hasn't. Something that is going to continue until Christ returns, until Christ's will is done on this world, that his kingdom comes in in fullness, is that man will continue to be inhumane to man. One of the, the best kind of Christian perspectives on world history that I've ever encountered is Francis Schaeffer's How Shall We Then Live? Simple, fun videos to watch if you want to see wonderful cinematography and phenomenal dress. You can watch it or you can read it. It's also a, a good read. But something that he talks about is the cyclical nature of how man in all time periods, in all cultures, in all places is inhumane to man. And that is why we run into the problems that we have. Man, even if they don't have a swastika on their hat and they're not giving a salute to Hitler, they buy into this idea of there is life that is unworthy of life. But the fact of the matter is, is that all mankind is worthy of life because God has ordained him to be worthy of life. All mankind bears the image of God. We'll get to some examples here, some very pertinent examples, but this needs to be plain in our minds. The image of God is not something that you receive at your baptism. It's not something you receive at your conversion. It's not something that you receive and is kind of renewed when we take the Lord's Supper. The image of God is stamped onto every person from before the cradle to the grave. How do we know this? In Genesis chapter 9, a few chapters after where we are, something very bad happens. Actually, Genesis 9 is good. But leading up to Genesis 9, something very bad happens. Because of the depravity and the sinfulness and the inhumanity of man, God brings a great flood upon the earth. And all but Noah and his children and their wives and those that are in the ark are saved. And after this, when they land on the mountain, they disembark. They create an altar. God cuts a new covenant with, with Noah. And this is what God says. Surely I will require your lifeblood. From every living thing, I will require it. And hear this, church. Two important things are established in this text. And from every man, from each man's brother, I will require the life of man. Whoever sheds man's blood, by man his blood shall be shed. For in the image of God, he made man. Much was lost in the fall. Much was lost in, when, when man stepped from innocence in Genesis chapter 3. But what was not lost was the image of God. The proximity to God physically but also spiritually was lost. 
The, the, the nature of life, the quality of life, as silly and as simple as that sounds, that Adam and Eve enjoyed in the garden, those things were lost after the fall. But what was not lost was the image of God. Because what God says, generations and generations, after man left the Garden of Eden, after the angel was placed there to keep man from re-entering the Garden of Eden, is that man is still made in the image of God. Interestingly enough, God also ordains the death penalty here, but that's for another sermon. God has placed the image of uh, his image on all mankind. So as I said before, that means all. Anyone who is man, as un-PC as that is to say today, all of humankind, if you will, receives the image of God, bears the image of God. Everyone. But we'd be remiss in 2023 not to focus on what we ought to focus on not doing a little bit of image of God triage. What is most important for us to focus on? What is most important for us to be acutely aware, to be honed to a sharp edge, to be able to explain, to be able to defend, to be able to biblically, not politically, but biblically argue for? For this culture, for our present situation, understanding how the unborn are given the image of God is essential for us to understand. Why the emphasis? Why is this such a big deal? There's so many other problems. There's so many other issues in our culture. Why is this the one that evangelicals harp on all the time? And it may be crass, and it may, it, it may sound terrible, but rewind 150 years ago. What should the evangelical church should have been speaking out about in the United States? About slavery. Rewind about 100 years ago in Central Europe. What should evangelical Christians should have been speaking out about? Should have been speaking about the genocide that was happening there. Then why would anyone argue with the fact that even though the Supreme Court has made headway, but that is on the laws and not on the heart of man, that we ought to not argue for the dignity of life as it is pre-born? The genocide of the preborn is one of the greatest black marks that is on our culture or any other culture throughout history. Something that is very clear is that there's a special level of contempt in the heart of God. Yes, God does get angry for those who kill, for those who take advantage of children and the weak, who offer their children to the pagan gods, Molech and otherwise. This is something that we see repeated so often in the Old Testament that sometimes it becomes old hat. But the fact of the matter is, is that the situation in our present circumstance today, these are things that need to be in the forefront of our hearts and our minds as we have these conversations. This is not a political argument. This is a biblical argument. In Psalm 139, a text that we know so well, God says that the, the psalmist says that you form my inward parts. You wove me in my mother's womb. I will give thanks to you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. In Jeremiah chapter 1, the, the, the prophet in talking to, uh, in hearing from God, hears, before I formed you in the innermost parts, I knew you. And before you came out from the womb, I set you apart. I have given you as a prophet to the nations. In Luke chapter 1, we have the, 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 the picture of, of Mary and Elizabeth meeting and the baby leaping for joy, acknowledging the presence of the pre-born Savior, Jesus Christ. The Apostle Paul, in talking about his commission, says that when God, who had set me apart from my mother's womb, called me through his grace, he was pleased. So church, there is no proof text that 
will, will, will talk about abortion in, in any state or federal argument. But there's no proof text, but there is the assumption from Genesis 1 all the way through the New Testament that preborn humans are humans and that humans bear the image of God. This is something that we can't compromise on. This is something that we can't go halfway on. This is not something that we should do anything but advocate for the full abolition of. If we do anything less than that, then we are just as bad as those, those people who received the black marks back in, 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 in pre-Civil War days or things like that, that were not advocating for the dignity of human life. You pick your culture, you pick your time, and there was someone that should have been saying something that was probably uncomfortable. For us, it is this. This is the thing that will get people giving you side eyes at the water cooler. This is the kind of thing that will get you kicked off social media. Is that really that much of a loss? Probably not. This is the kind of thing that will get you stigmatized. But remember the stigma, that stigma is a negative connotation. The mark that you bear, first and foremost, is of Christ. But secondly, a mark that you bear and that you share those that you are defending with those who are actively antagonistic towards them is the image of God. This is our fight today, church. This doesn't mean that we don't advocate for the disabled. This doesn't mean that we don't advocate for the aged. This doesn't mean that we don't advocate for the marginalized. It's just that there's not a Holocaust going on for any of these groups today in our culture. And that's why we speak with the passion and the fervor that we do. And if and when those other groups are put into that same category, then we, the church, those who are adhering to the word of God and the plain truth of the image that is found on every man, woman, and child, regardless of age or status or size or circumstance, then we ought to be at the front of the line advocating from God's word, not from a political place, why people ought to be defended, why life ought to be defended, why life is worthy of life. And so, as I said before, it's not only the preborn, it's the disabled, it's the aged, it's the marginalized, every socioeconomic strata, every ethnicity, whatever it may be, we stand up, and from a biblical position, not a political position, we acknowledge that all men are made in the image of God and all men have dignity. As was brought up before in, in uh, the catechism time, our tongue is a deadly weapon. And the, 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 one of the texts in, in the New Testament that is most explicit about this in the, in the book of James, it reinforces that man is made in the likeness of God. It says, no one can tame the tongue. It's a restless evil and full of deadly poison. With it, we bless our Lord and Father. And with it, we curse men who have been made in the likeness of God. You may not be standing in front of a state house holding a sign defending the rights of a group here or there. But just like we talked about with the children in the catechism, it starts with our hearts. How do you treat image bearers that cut you off in traffic? How do you treat image bearers who don't mow their lawn perfectly as it abuts to your lawn? How do you treat image bearers that vote in a way that you find reprehensible? How do you treat image bearers that chew loudly? How do you treat image bearers that are being inhumane to man? How do you think about those image bearers? 
Church, that's where it starts. The hypocrisy, unfortunately, of the church so often is protesting at the state house and then turning around and cursing man as they drive home. Our burden is to treat man with the dignity that was given him as he was created in God's image. But of course, just being caring and being kind is not enough. Being caring and being kind is not enough. We acknowledge the gospel is what man needs. Life is important. Life matters. Water is important. Water matters. Food is important. Security, housing, all of these things, they matter. They are important. They are necessary. But the burden of the church, whether it be here in Chester, New Hampshire, or whether it be in some sort of humanitarian mission situation in a third world country, the fact of the matter is that with that cold drink of water that we offer, what ought to accompany it is the words of the gospel. Because treating man like man is not enough. Treating man as worthy of life is not enough. We need to treat man in a situation, a position that he needs to go beyond his present state. And the only place that he can find that is in Christ. In Ephesians chapter 4, this is a long text, but it illustrates this point perfectly. In Ephesians chapter 4, the Apostle Paul writes that, that you walk no longer just as the Gentiles walk in the futility of their mind. So although we are in the image of God before Christ, we are in futility. We are in futility, being darkened in their minds, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them, because they have hardened their heart. And church, this is every one of us, every one of us before Christ, every one of us before salvation, every one of us before regeneration is hardened in our hearts, alienated from the life of God. And be, we become callous, give ourselves over to sensuality for the practice of every kind of impurity with greediness. But we did not learn Christ this way. And if you, you did, you heard him and were taught in him, just as the truth is in Jesus. To lay aside in reference to your former conduct, the old man, which is being corrupted in accordance with the lusts of deceit. And here it is, church. And be renewed in the spirit of your mind and to put on the new man, and hear this parallelism to everything we've been talking about today, which in the likeness of God has been created in righteousness and holiness of truth. All mankind bears the image of God, but God extends the gospel, the free call of the gospel, for men to come and be made in the likeness of Christ, the new man, because the being in the image of God but in the likeness of Adam will get you nowhere. But being in the image of God, in the likeness of Christ, the second Adam, a redeemed man, the one who, as we talked about last week, fulfilled the law in completion in a way that we could never do. Finding yourself in that by God's grace is where you have not a renewed image of God, but you are now in the image of Christ. It's a very simple call to acknowledge you're not dirt. You have value. But acknowledge that you're not God. You can't save yourself. God's call to sinners is to turn to him, to repent, and to receive the gift of free grace offered and accomplished by the risen Savior. We don't get a restored image of God. We get a image of Christ that is placed upon us.
Church, this is a wonderful truth that a hurting world needs. I think that's something that's been repeated over and over again as we've gone through Genesis 1 through 3, that these truths are truths that our world needs. They need the gospel first and foremost, but the very, very often the conduit by which the gospel is transmitted is by telling them that they have dignity, is by telling them that they matter, to tell them that they have purpose, that they're more than just an evolved specimen, but they're not as good as some sort of pantheistic spark of the divine. That the true divine came, took on flesh, walked among us, took our sins, paid our price. And through that, we can have peace with God, the one who created us in our image, in his image. Well, church, now we're going to take the supper. And the supper gives us opportunity to reflect on the fact that although we are in his image, we are being conformed more and more into the likeness of Christ each day. This week was probably not a perfect week. In thought and in word and in deed, you inevitably did things that fell short of God's perfect law. The supper is still for you. If you are in Christ, the table is for you. It's his table, and he invites those who are his to come. But as we come, as, as, the, as the musicians come up and lead us in music, this is the time, this is the opportunity to get things right in your heart with God. And no one will look at you sideways to get things right with someone else if there is something between you and them. That's what this time is for. That's what this table is for. Just as the family dining room table is often the place where problems and differences get hashed out, a simple word, a simple squeeze hand, a simple apology as we go to the table is what this space is for. The table is not going to bring you to repentance. The table is not going to renew your spirit, but it will nourish you in the spiritual presence that we receive of Christ in faith as we come and take these elements. So I'll pray. The music team will come up and lead us in a song. Come up and receive the elements and then return to your seats and we'll partake of them together. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you that you've created us in your image. Not, all, not, not just us, but all mankind. And consequently, you, through your Son, have made those who he has died for redeemable. That you redeemed us through his blood because your Son came into this world and took on flesh, being in the likeness of man. Lord, let everything that we talked about today resonate as much as it is found in your word. The, the differentiation, the distinction of man, the dominion you've given us, the dignity you've given us, but that all of these things reach their zenith and our understanding of them is complete when found in the knowledge of the saving grace of your son, Jesus Christ. Minister to us now as we come up, receive the elements. It's the name of your son we pray. Amen.